Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. In the spirit of our mission and encouraging community, I want to thank those of you who call in from time to time and remind those of you who call in who have difficulty getting through to please persist. We do have some limited technology, but I do want to take your calls. I love talking to you. I want to hear what you have to say, and I'm going to be making announcements from time to time as to when a good time to call in is. For your information, the telephone number when you do want to call in is 707-937-5103, 707-937-5103. I also wish to apologize to my brother, Edward Riemberto Miller. I was supposed to call him last week during the program, and I neglected to do so. I'm very sorry, Ed. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Maisel. I'm, I'm just whelmed by the, by the privilege of having Dr. Maisel uh, on this program. He's, uh, he's the author, I thought, of over 30 books. But when I spoke to him right before going on air today, he told me he's actually written at least 50 books. Most of them are in our field of psychology. Many of them are also in fiction. Dr. Maisel is the author of Mastering Creative Anxiety, which is going to be the main topic of our interview today. But he's also written books on brainstorming, on creativity for life, on coaching the artist within. He's written a book on atheism. I mean, he's written so many books that I hope to have him on many times and do a whole series uh, with Dr. Maisel. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Eric. Hi, Richard. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, let's see, where shall we begin? You've written many books for creative people. Many, isn't it? It doesn't even grasp it. <laughs> You've written a library for creative people. Tell us something about where you're at and your intention for this particular book, Mastering Creative Anxiety. Well, I've written about anxiety in the creative process um, several times over. In a book called Fearless Creating, I walked readers through the steps of the creative process all the way from wanting to create to starting to working to completing to selling, all the different steps, and identified different anxieties in, in the different stages of the process. So I've been in this territory before. But I wanted to do what I hope is a comprehensive and clear job of identifying all the places in the creative process where anxiety arises. And then I think most importantly, provide a real menu of anxiety management strategies. There are 22 categories of strategies in the book. And of course, nobody's going to learn 22 strategies, but it, I think it's good for readers to know that they have many different alternative ways of trying to manage anxiety and hopefully one or two of those 22 will really work for them. Actually, when I was uh, reading your book and I, and I saw these 22 different uh, strategies, I was thinking it would be a great idea to have them on a chart on the wall in front of me when I sat down to write, and I could just sort of pick out one or two or three to use at any particular time. I think that's one way to go. I try to suggest to clients that they, that they just own one or two ah. and really practice it and you know, have it available in situations where anxiety arises. You know, a lot of people are pretty good at managing anxiety when there's no anxiety. 
you know, they're they're good at doing their half hour sitting meditation and they get nice and calm. And that doesn't necessarily serve them at all when they have to make a phone call to a literary agent or when they have to get up on stage. So it's important to have anxiety management strategies that work in vivo, that work in real life when you actually get anxious. And for that, as you know, rehearsing them is really important. But let's talk about the word anxiety itself. What, what is anxiety? How do you describe anxiety? How does a person know when they're anxious? Well, there's a, I think, not very plausible distinction often made between anxiety and fear. And fear is often construed as, realistic, as, a, as our sensing realistic danger. And anxiety is construed as us recognizing irrational danger. But I'm not sure that it's irrationally dangerous to feel like your performance is really important to you and may make or break your career. That, the anxiety that wells up when a performer gets on the stage is, in this context, called irrational, but I'm not quite sure that's true. So I'm not so sure that there is a giant difference between fear and anxiety. It's our body's early warning system about danger. And because we're not brilliant at deciding what really is dangerous and what isn't dangerous, our warning system works us up even when there's no particular real danger. So I think that's maybe the headline about anxiety. It's the way our warning system operates, and our warning system doesn't operate that beautifully. Yeah, I often think that if I'm sitting in a concrete bunker and the walls are about four feet thick full of concrete all the way around, and I manage to scare myself and get an uncomfortable feeling in my chest or my arms, that's irrational anxiety, unless there's no air in the room. That's exactly right. And you say an interesting thing, because anxiety wells up for all sorts of reasons, and the the situation you just described is very much like the situation called inhibited flight, which is what uh, a lot of performers experience when they're waiting in the green room or, or in the wings before a performance. So there, the, the danger, it's not, danger is not exactly the right word. What they're experiencing is this inability to flee. And so in your bunker, you might get anxious, and it's not about you know the radiation making it through the cement. It's that you can't get out. <laughs> so we have ways of making any situation feel dangerous. So a person listening to this, and they're saying, okay, I'm going for a job interview, and I've got feelings how do I know if these feelings are anxiety? And if they are, what can I do about them so that they don't get in the way with my performance and I give a good interview? You can't really know if it's anxiety because, as I say, our body isn't brilliant in distinguishing between anxiety and excitement, for instance. Ah. Both create adrenaline. Uh, it's really actually difficult to know what we're feeling at any given moment. Symptoms are things like confusion and, you know, queasy stomach and need to urinate. and you know, the whole array of symptoms we could describe that would help you know if you're feeling anxious or not. So that's one way to know is by a symptom picture. But in a way, we can't know too beautifully. One of the, one of the, one of the things about us as a species is that we're pretty darn tricky. And one of the things we like to do is avoid the experience of anxiety and not quite let us let ourselves know that's what we're doing. You know, so we may say something to ourselves like, I'm too busy or I'm too tired, which may sound like, you know, a lot of grains of truth in there. But we're saying those things in order to not get our work done. So because the situation is that confusing and complex internally, we can't always know when we're anxious. We may not feel anxious because we managed to escape the feeling of anxiety by fleeing the encounter. 
So if we get away from the particular situation, what, we ditch the interview or we stop, exactly. we, we don't go for the... Or we don't go anywhere near the airport if we're f- afraid of flying. Then we can reduce anxiety by staying away from whatever it is. But then but, you never get to go to Paris. And you never get to go for the job interview, you that's never right. try out for the part, you never write your book. That's right, and that's why um, trying to avoid anxiety in the creative process isn't really a brilliant maneuver. Because what that often means for a creative person is, let's say that you have figured out how to make a decent stripe painting or something. If you try to avoid anxiety, what you're likely to do is keep repeating yourself and make one stripe painting after another and not really make use of your talents or your mind or your heart because you're trying to avoid the experience of anxiety, so you keep repeating yourself mechanically. So you may, in fact, not be anxious, but what's happened is you're not also creating very deeply. So trying to avoid the experience of anxiety, as I say, is not a brilliant maneuver. It's better to embrace it, accept it, even invite it in a certain sense, and then learn how to manage it. Let's, let's please talk more about inviting anxiety. That's a fascinating concept. Well, I think there, there are many different ways to say the same thing. One is, um, if you are really meaning to create, then you have to go into this unknown place, into this place of not knowing it's just like as a kid, you know, if the other side of the room is, is in darkness, you really don't want to go there, and that's going to make you anxious. But because we really want to go down that dark alley or into the dark side of the room, or however you want to say it, we really want to go there, we have to invite that anxiety. Maybe we have to, you know, whistle in the dark or do whatever old-fashioned way of managing anxiety comes to mind that, you know, that we used as kids to deal with, you know, darkness and shadows playing against the, the opposite wall. But we have to invite anxiety in that sense, that the, wor- the work takes place in a place where we don't know, and not knowing makes us anxious. To make a second point, choosing provokes anxiety. You know, if you're just trying to think of whether this is a you know, good-tasting cereal morning or a you know, healthy cereal morning, you can get a little tendril of anxiety. And that's nothing compared to what a creative person experiences, because every single thing a creative person does is one choice after another. You know, put a little red on the canvas, put a little green on the canvas, (coughs) send your character to Paris, send your character to Zanzibar. It's one choice after another, and choosing provokes anxiety. So in this sense also, because as a creative person, you know that you're going to have to make one choice after another until the end of time, you have to invite anxiety in. When I think of anxiety and how I experience it and how my patients experience it, it's a it's a kind of electrical buzz in the in the middle of my body in my chest sometimes into mm-hmm. my arms and it brings with it a, a sensation that I call imminent doom. <coughs> mm-hmm. Does that sound uh, what you're about similar to what that, you're that, talking? That's anxiety. Yeah, that's anxiety. Yeah, that, that is one of that is one of the uh, classic symptoms of anxiety. That sense of impending doom. Yes. And um, I think it's interesting how high we raise the stakes internally to think that, let me just put a parenthesis here, and I know you know this, and, and probably your listeners do too, but the number one worldwide phobia is not, you know, fear of flying or fear of snakes or fear of rats or fear of bridges, it's fear of public speaking. Uh-huh. And yeah. that goes to show how much we don't want to get our ego bruised and how much we fear putting ourselves on the line in, in front of an audience. So I think that I think that speaks to how how high we raise the bar and why it feels like impending doom because we feel 
not so much is at stake, but we feel so much is at stake when we produce a painting or produce a novel or get up on stage. And by raising the bar that high, we dramatically and unfortunately increase our experience of anxiety. So let's say one of our listeners is listening right now, and, and he, he hears you and he says, or she, they say to themselves, yeah, that's me. I, I, wanna, I try to get up in front of people, and I get this feeling that they're talking about, and then I don't get up in front of people. Let's say that person comes into your office, Eric, and says, I want help. I, I have a job where I know I'm going to get enhanced. I will be promoted if I can get up in front of people and talk, and I haven't been able to do so. What do you do? Well, there are a ton of things to do. Um, the place I often start is the cognitive place, and I teach that simple three-step process that cognitive therapists know, and that is I would ask that person to really pay attention to what she says to herself, really notice what she's saying, which is an act of courage because, as I said before, we're pretty tricky creatures and we don't really want to know what we're saying to ourselves. So I'd want her to notice what she was saying to herself and then dispute those utterances that don't serve her. That's the big key in cognitive therapy, as you know, the disputing utterances that don't serve us, and then I would ask her to substitute more affirmative language. And that simple three-step process of noticing and disputing and substituting would probably be our starting point. So I would have her, you know, maybe spend the week between sessions or the two weeks between sessions really putting down, keeping some kind of journal where she ta- where she makes note of the things she's saying. And it's probably things like, I'm too old, there's too much competition, why would they want me, um, I'm going to blow the interview, etc., etc. You know, she, I'm sure she would do a good job of noticing all the things that she's saying. And then she, I would ask her to create thought substitutes, the, the ways that she would prefer to say that. And I think the main point of this cognitive therapy work is to learn how to dispute a thought that doesn't serve us the instant it arises so it has no chance to linger and defeat us. And the ultimate goal, you know, is not to arm wrestle these thoughts to the ground continually, but actually to extinguish them to create in our mind the feeling that why bother to generate another one of those negative thoughts when I'm going to ext- when I'm going to fight you off in the next instant I might as well not even bother to think it and over time people can actually extinguish those utterances that don't serve them they just pass away of malnutrition that's right and the disputing is then not necessary but they can continue with new with substitutions with models of how they want to be yeah and in my vernacular then a person has gotten out of her own way i think we're in our own way all the time by the things we say especially internally we get in our own way we say unnecessary things we say gee it's 72 degrees and i only speak well when it's 68 degrees or we say all kinds of unnecessary things and finally when those kinds of thoughts don't bother to arise then we're out of our own way now, is what you're saying about this uh, noticing, disputing, and substituting, is that connected to attitude choice? And if so, how? It is connected to attitude choice because I think that the, the smartest attitude for us to choose is an attitude that's more philosophical and more phlegmatic than we usually are. To, to use that expression from that book of some years ago, it's really smart not to sweat the small stuff, and that's an attitude choice. It's also an attitude choice to be less vigilant. As you know, vigilance is one of the symptoms of anxiety. A vigilant person is typically an anxious person. She's surveying what's going on around her because she's looking for dangers. 
the better we the better job we can do of being less vigilant in in this particular sense the more we can be phlegmatic and philosophical and the better job we do of not having anxiety provoking thoughts arise in us and if if we if we're less vigilant do we also lose mindfulness and awareness or can we be mindful and aware and less vigilant at the same time absolutely can do um i remember giving a a talk to writers and it was one of those luncheon meetings where the waiters were going back and forth behind me and i was attached to a microphone that was you know into one of those big sound boxes and every time a waiter would go by they would disconnect me <laughs> and so <clears throat> it was a great learning lesson for the audience because i refused to treat it as a distraction i would just keep speaking sometimes in a mic'd voice and sometimes in a non-mic'd voice and as you can imagine, the audience was going crazy with anxiety over what was going on. So I got to use that as a teaching lesson. It is entirely possible to not care what's going on around you, not care that a truck is rumbling down the street, or not care that your cat just passed, and be entirely present and focused on what you intend to do. I think this is a feature of intention, to say, I really mean to do my work, and I'm not going to let a thought like, the yard needs mowing, or an, an, a circumstance like a truck rumbling by distract me from my important work. Can we set our intention for an entire day at a time? Can I get up in the morning and say, this is my attitude that I'm going to take for today and maintain it? I think a day is a long period of time. Too big, too, too big a chunk. How, <laughs> how, how, how big a chunk? Tired. Yeah, how um, big well, a chunk can I bite off with, yeah, a, with an I, attitude? Let me say it in a couple of different ways. Great. I encourage people to um, think through when they wake up what meaning investments they want to make on that day. And I'll have to explain that a tiny bit. Meaning investments, yes. Yeah. Um, I am trying to help this paradigm shift from seeking meaning to making meaning. I believe that's the most important paradigm shift for our species to undertake. From, seeking, for, from, from seeking meaning to, making, to meaning. making meaning. Yeah, we've had as a metaphor for thousands of years the metaphor of seeking meaning, that the meaning is outside of us, that it's on top of a mountain or at some guru's feet. Yes, searching for the meaning in life. Searching for the meaning in life. And I think it's time to let go of that metaphor and recognize that we know enough about life, we know enough about our own values and principles and desires to make meaning on a given day, to just decide what's meaningful to us. That we create the meaning in life rather than it be somewhere that we've got to go search and find. That's right. And I think that there are maybe two dozen important meaning opportunities for human beings. There are a ton more than that in the sense that anything can feel meaningful. So in a certain sense, there's an infinite number. But to say it simply, I think there are two dozen important meaning opportunities, things like creating or relationships or service, etc., etc. There are plenty of places where um, meaning can be made. I think you can decide in the morning where you're going to make meaning on that day, where your meaning investments are. And it may only be three or four hours of the day. The other six or eight hours, you may have to treat them uh, as meaning neutral. That is, they're not really important to you. They're the running errands time. They're piece of the day job. They're this, that, and the other thing. They're the hour you relax or the three hours you relax. I use the phrase meaning neutral for that time so that people can think of it not as a, not as a meaningless time and not as a blue time, but just as a time when they don't have to make meaning, when they can relax from their meaning-making needs.
but there need to be some hours on the day, in the day when you when you do have the experience of making meaning. If there are no hours in the day where you have the experience of making meaning, then the day will feel meaningless to you, and you will start to breed that low case. Um, depression, existential depression, yeah, in the case that, of the blues. Right, that's what Sartre called the sickness unto death. Yeah. The so, void, no meaning for too many hours in a row or days in a row. That's right. Yeah. And so for creative people, I ask them to institute a morning creativity practice. I think it's the smartest thing they can do, namely create a new hour of the day before their real day begins, and if it's 4.30 to 5.30 in the morning, so be it. But to start a real creativity practice in the morning for three important reasons. The first is the obvious one. If you were to work on your book or whatever every day of the week for an hour, you'd get a lot done. The second reason is if it's the first thing in the morning, then you get to make use of what your brain's been thinking about through the night. And this is an important point because, as you know, we we dream in REM sleep, but we think in non-REM sleep, in deep sleep. And we do a lot of great thinking when we sleep, but as soon as we turn to the day, that great thinking evaporates. You know, as soon as we make the, you know, is it a bagel or a bran flakes kind of decision, we've turned to the new day and our sleep thinking is gone. So if you turn to your creating first thing, then you also get to make use of your sleep thinking. It's still available to you. And then the third important reason is, and we just talked about this, if you get to your work first thing in the morning, you will have the experience of having made some meaning on that day already. And the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you won't get depressed. <laughs> this, I'm, laugh- <laughs> I'm laughing about the, the ability to be able to have the rest of the day be half meaningful because you've gotten some. And I, I, can, I can relate to that because I, I typically exercise the first thing in the morning and that gives me a feeling, well, I've got that done. So, you know, whatever happens now, at least I've exercised. That's right. But, but listening to a man who's written 50 books say that the first thing to do is to write is going to get me rethinking my whole day. I, I assure you of that. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because for a lot, a lot of people are already trying to do something before their real day starts, whether it's exercise or yoga or journaling, meditation practice. An awful lot of people are doing something that's you know incredibly helpful to them in that time. And, of course, they don't really want to lose that. My suggestion to them is to try to move it to a different time of the day. If their creating matters to them, if, if they want to make a new meaning investment in their creative life, then they actually need that hour, and then they're going to have to move their yoga or their journaling or their exercise to a different time of the day. You know, although I personally agree with you that we can make meaningful anything that we make meaningful that we can we can impute meaning into whatever mm-hmm. is in front of us martin buber said that all real living is meeting in other words it's the relationship that is all of life what are your thoughts on that comment he in other words he i guess he was saying the highest priority of all meaning is meeting is the is the i thou relationship yes i, I don't agree with any um formulation of one sort or another of meaning being the highest. Uh I think meaning is a subjective experience. And to give you just a simple example, on one day it may be meaningful for you to sit by a pond and watch the ducks. And on the next day, because you really are feeling guilty about not getting to your novel and you really want to get to your novel, you can't sit there for even two seconds in a row because your real meaning is elsewhere. Both are true situations. It was meaningful for you to sit there on the first day, and it's meaningful for you to get up after two seconds on the second day. 
I think meaning is more like that. It really flows from a human being's understanding of how he wants to make himself proud. And so and, what, what you're uh, saying then also, it sounds very egalitarian to me, in that, in that what, we can find meaning in anything we do, and there isn't a hierarchy, that's which right. means it doesn't mean that one person is a better person because they pick a particular thing to find meaningful than another person. No, and I have to quickly say the obvious thing, and that is, if you do something that you find that is meaningful, and I find it to be odious, it is part of my meaning-making um, activity to denounce you. You know, so we have to be clear that because you feel something is meaningful, that doesn't mean I'm going to find it ethical. So we have to be clear about how we say that. But it is deeply egalitarian because meaning is subjective, and it's you know it's not more meaningful to engage in space exploration or not engage in space exploration or do any kind of pair you can name. One is not more meaningful than the other. It's just one human being's understanding of whether that thing is meaningful to him or her. When, when I heard you uh, just say uh, you know, the possibility that one that I could be doing something and that you could find my particular beha- activity that I'm finding meaningful, you could find it odious, and you might make a comment about that, I, I was immediately reminded of one of your other many books, or, which is uh, Toxic Criticism. And, 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 and we probably won't get to it today, but I would love to be able to talk to you about that, that whole, your whole uh, you know, uh, way of thinking about toxic criticism and how we deal with it, because as we know, I mean, criticism is so injurious to, to our mental health. It is, and it, it, it's, it's a particular affliction to um, would-be creative people, people who would love to create but can't quite seem to get to it. I'm sure you, you remember Otto Rank, the psychologist who was of the era of Freud and Jung, oh, yes. coined the phrase artist manque for the artist who flees the responsibility of freedom. And there are an awful lot of creative people who are fleeing the encounter because they were criticized in third grade or fifth grade or by their parents. That's still haunting them. I read a study, uh, Eric, which, which uh, indicated that we can be criticized in the second or third grade and remember the criticism as if it was yesterday, 20 and 30 years later, and it can affect our entire academic career. That, that's absolutely true. And then there's the, the second horrible, unfortunate feature of that, and that's the way, to use technical jargon, we interject that criticism, and now it's us criticizing ourselves. We, not, we may not remember that it was our third-grade teacher who said we have poor penmanship, but now it's us saying we have poor penmanship. So both things are true, that that criticism is terribly injurious, and then we take it on ourselves and make it our own. Yes. Let's just take a quick sidebar here and tell our listeners about the three kinds of uh, uh, major kinds of criticisms that you discuss in your Toxic Criticism book. Actually, you're going to have to help me remember. That's a book from a little while ago. Oh, well, the first one is self-criticism, which you just, which you just described, uh, that we introject. We take criticism from outside. You talk about this in your book. And yep. then we put it inside, and then we use it on ourselves. It's as if we take a baseball bat out of, the, out of the, uh, the, the sporting goods store, we carry it around and hit ourselves over the head with it on a regular basis. Yep. And the second one you talk about is criticism from outside and how to deal with that. And and uh, and that's something we we all and yep. that, uh, are, are nervous about. In fact, that ties in with what you were saying before about the biggest fear being the fear of public speaking because we're the concern that, that we're going to expose ourselves. That's in, right, isn't it? 
So I, I said that's a sidebar. We'll come back to it. Maybe we'll do a whole program on sure. your book, if you will, in the future. But we want to come back to, to today's program. By the way, uh, our guest today is Dr. Eric Maisel. He's the author of over 50 books. Um, uh, prolific hardly hardly grasps the the, the achievement that, that he has made and, and the and the um, contribution he's made to our field. Um, th- the book today we're talking about is Mastering Creative Anxiety, and I want to talk a little bit now, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit now, really, about uh, existential, your concept of existential decisiveness. Big words, what do they mean? I'm arguing in the book, and I've written about this elsewhere, that one of the worst places to be is what I call the maybe trap, and that is not quite sure if we matter. Maybe we matter, maybe we don't matter, maybe our efforts matter, maybe our efforts don't matter. I think maybe the whole species now, but certainly hundreds of millions of people are in this postmodern predicament of wanting to do things, having ambitions, having dreams, but really wondering if they are just excited matter and that they don't really matter. And I think that we have to make a decision that we do matter, at least to ourselves. And that's what I mean by existential decisiveness. When we decide that we do matter and that we're going to matter, then we reduce our experience of this particular kind of anxiety, the anxiety that comes with being in this maybe place of never quite having our feet firmly on the ground with a yes or a no, but being in that um, maybe trap place. What about what you call personality upgrading? What does that mean? We all can identify our strengths and our weaknesses if we take the time to do that, and we all come with a ton of important strengths in life. But we also come with shortfalls. We understand that maybe our way of dealing with anxiety is to act out and be rude and arrogant, or that we tend to hide when um, risk arises. So by personality upgrading, I mean identifying those traits in us that we think could use some upgrading. In the creativity literature, there are about 75 personality traits that are identified as constituting the creativity, the, the creative personality. And so there are lots of different places where a person can take a look at self, look in the mirror, and decide that, yeah, I want to be more disciplined, or I want to be a better risk taker, or I want to be more spontaneous, et cetera, et cetera. And as you know from systems theory, and I think this is true, anything that you work on, any particular trait that you work on, does some good work for us overall. That is, if we were to actually work on being a more disciplined person, or a better risk taker, or more spontaneous then our overall experience of life improves and we become more like the person we think we would like to be. So somebody's listening to this right now and they say, yeah, that's me. I want to be more disciplined. I want to be more disciplined. Dr. Maisel, what do I do? How do I become more, more disciplined? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of not disciplined. <laughs> there are a couple of things to say there, or there are many things to say there. First is to decide in what domain you want to be disciplined, because sometimes discipline in one domain is really a kind of obsessive-compulsive way of binding anxiety and doesn't really help you be disciplined in the domain you really want to operate in. So get specific. Get specific first, huh? 
Yeah, because if you if you are disciplined in rolling your socks, that may mean that that you have no chance at writing your novel. <laughs> That's great. You know. Uh-huh. So so discipline is a funny word. So we don't necessarily mean disciplined at rolling our socks. We yeah. mean disciplined at getting our work done. Uh-huh. So if that's the discipline we're talking about, then the, the gigantic headline is that we must show up and not attach to outcomes. Everybody's attaching to outcomes prematurely. They want the thing in front of them to be excellent before they've made one stroke on the page. They have this hope that they're going to turn out a masterpiece or at least a good thing. And that can't be guaranteed. There are no guarantees with respect to outcomes. In fact, the only way to honor process is to have real permission to make mistakes and messes. Permission to make mistakes and messes. That sounds terrific. Absolutely, because if you think you must get it right, maybe we sometimes call that perfectionism, if you think that you must get it right, you're going to feel entirely constipated and not work. So you want to show up. That's the headline and not attached to outcomes. Not and, attached to outcomes. That's mm-hmm. a fascinating concept. In other words, we, we've got to work with the process that we're working with, and yet we want to have a goal, but we can't be attached to it, is what you're saying. That's huh? right. I'll give you a simple example. Let's say that you get one week vacation during the year, and you decide to take it in a place that's sunny 365 days out of the year. And only on leap year do they get rain. And you can have the hope that it's going to be sunny. You can have as your goal that you're going to get a tan. But if you come and it's raining, you have to instantly change your mind about how you're going to enjoy that vacation. If you overattach to needing it to be sunny, you're going to have a miserable vacation. So it's fine to have as a hope and a goal that the sun is shining. But that's different from attaching to the need for the sun to be shining when you arrive. So you can have a beautiful hope for your novel, and you can have as your goal writing a terrific novel, and then you have to let go of all of that and actually write the novel and let it be whatever it is, and then honestly deal with it. To give you one sort of concrete example of what the honorable dealing with process sounds like, the the fellow who wrote that book, I mean, I get the name exactly right, but I think it's The Life of the Geisha or maybe Lives of the Geisha. He spent two years writing that book in the third person, and reread it and discovered that it was not alive. The book wasn't working. Most people then beat themselves up and call themselves untalented and put the book in a drawer and don't write. He did the honorable thing of saying, well, I think now I'm going to rewrite the whole thing in the first person. Maybe that'll work. And so he spent another couple of years rewriting in the first person, and it became you know, a big successful book. That's what honoring process looks like. You do the work, you discover that you made, let's say, a mess or a mistake, or just didn't work, however you want to say that, and then you honorably continue to sit there and do the next round of process. Wow. He, well, the man had tremendous discipline, and he also evidently had a day job to take to feed him while he was doing <laughs> writing for four years on that one book. <laughs> this concept of allowing ourselves to mess up, it, 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 it's a very important one. It is. It really is. Uh, and, and there's so much in our society that calls for us not to mess up that we've got to both be able to not mess up. We've got to drive at the speed limit. We've got to walk down the street on the, in the right way. We've got to act a certain way in a movie theater or in a restaurant, etc., etc., to be civil people. And yet you're saying we also have to allow ourselves 
to keep missing the ball as it's pitched to us until we get around to hitting it. That's right, and let me piggyback on what you're saying. It's exactly right that all day long we're supposed to do the correct thing, drive on the right side of the road, etc. And then this moment is supposed to come where we go into the unknown and have this not just intellectual but visceral permission to make mistakes and messes. Well, I think it should be clear from what we both just said that it's probably smart to have some kind of transition mechanism that allows you to move from one way of being to the other way of being so that when you come home from your day of doing things right, that you can move to this other place of having permission to make mistakes and messes. I think one really smart transition mechanism is the following one, and that is to use the idea of a deep cleansing breath, five seconds on the inhale, five seconds on the exhale. Use some deep breathing, which has been known for thousands of years to be an excellent anxiety management tool. Use those deep breaths as containers for useful thought, and the useful thought to drop into the deep breath in this circumstance would be, I am completely on the inhale and then stopping on the exhale. I'm completely stopping. And if you do this marrying of deep breathing and smart thinking, what you're really saying to yourself is, I'm completely stopping needing to get things right. For the next couple of hours, I do not need to get things right. And you can use this technique. I did a whole book on this called Ten Zen Seconds, in which I identify 12 phrases that you can drop into deep breaths. I am completely stopping being one of them. You can use this technique, and I call it encanting just to differentiate it from affirmations because of the breathing component. You can use this technique in all kinds of circumstances and create for yourself 10-second, 20-second, 30-second centering tools that really work for you because you've used your smart phrases and dropped them into useful deep breaths. So what you're doing is you're doing your abdominal breathing, and at the same time you're dropping the phrase such as I'm perfectly calm or I'm feeling well right into your consciousness That's while right. the breathing is relaxing the entire organism. That's exactly right. I think it's a really smart, simple marrying of some of the best best ideas of East and West in a very simple little device. You know, I listen to you say this. <clears throat> I, 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 I've talked about breathing on this program many times and actually how I saved my own life with breathing one time after a, an automotive accident. Mm-hmm. And, and I I always ask the question when we talk, and, and our whole profession agrees, I think, with what we're saying about the importance of breathing, how it's faster than a speeding Valium, etc. And I don't understand why we're not teaching it in grammar school, why, when, why children aren't brought up uh, with this as just one of their many tools for living. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'm afraid we can't go there because we don't <laughs> teach our children virtually anything that's really useful. So that's perhaps a whole nother subject. That's a whole nother subject. By the way, we're listening to Dr. Eric Maisel. He's the author of over 50 books. We're talking about mastering creative anxiety today. And if you want to call in, now's the time, 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. If you've got a question about anxiety, or maybe you're too anxious to call, what do they do then, Eric? <laughs> I guess I'll have to continue white-knuckling life. You know, I mean, actually, people have mentioned that to me. They say, you know, I'd like to call in, but I, I'm a little embarrassed because my friends might recognize my voice, And <laughs> but we're getting a call right away because we've got a great bunch of people listening to this program. We're going to take this one, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, great show, you guys. Thanks. Um, 
I had an interesting comment on uh, your most recent uh, talk was about uh, not being attached to the outcome, and I loved his analogy about the uh, sunny vacation and bad weather. And uh, last year, this year is my 50th um, year in life, and my birthday has never rained until this year. <laughs> and ironically, I had a big party, and you know, most of the women spent time inside, and most of the guys spent time outside, and it worked out great, but um, I'm also a sculptor, and when I'm going to uh, work on something a lot of times, I have that anxiety. You can probably hear it in my voice, even. And um, the closer my work gets to fruition sometimes, the more anxiety I have about it, although when I come to it and I see it, it's often much better than I would have thought I was capable of in the first place. I'm happy to jump in on that because we, the caller is bringing up the big question of completing and the anxiety of completing. And it's a, it's a very big issue in, in the lives of a lot of creative people. An awful lot of creative people get to the 86% place or 97% place of their work and just let it be there because they can't complete it and they start the next thing and they end up with an array of things that aren't completed. I think completing is a very interesting problem. Um, the first and most obvious reason why anxiety wells up is that when we decide it's done, then we have to show it in the world and then we have to open ourselves up to criticism and rejection and appraising. And while it isn't done, all of its flaws still are just in the studio, and then when it is done, those flaws get to be seen by the rest of the world. So that's an important moment to start doing a special version of the dance of attachment and detachment as one approaches the end of a project. You still want to be attached to it in the sense that you want it to be good, but you also have to be moving towards that place of detachment where you understand that you're going to be letting it out into the world and you're, and you're going to be inviting criticism, rejection, and appraising, and that it's time for that. So this is a cognitive approach to completing, namely reminding ourselves that we want our work to be in the world and that we're ready for whatever comes. That's just one, but maybe that's just the tip of the iceberg of the completing issue, and I think maybe I'll leave it there. It, well, I want to tie uh, what you just said, Eric, in with uh, one of your 24 uh, lessons, and that's number 16, which is uh, ceremonies and rituals. Would you, would you recommend a ceremony and a ritual for a completion process as a way of, uh, of letting go and starting something else? Absolutely. Uh, when you've decided that you've completed, there, there can't quite be a, a ritual or a ceremony on the journey to completion because you're not quite sure <laughs> where you are. But let's say that you've decided that your sculpture is finished today. It would be brilliant to, first of all, celebrate. Creative people hardly ever celebrate enough, celebrate their successes enough. They think they're only supposed to celebrate when a thing sells or when their book is published or what have you. And if they wait for that, they may only be celebrating every fifth year. You know, So you want to genuinely celebrate when you finish a piece of work. So that's part of the ceremony and ritual process. But then I think you want to use this, the encanting process I mentioned before. And one of the, one of the strong incantations to use when you finish something is I return on the inhale and with strength on the exhale. I return with strength because we want to remind ourselves that, yes, we finished it, but now we need the strength to mark it. And we also want to remind ourselves that as exhausting as this may have made us to do this work, we nevertheless can take care of the rest of life. 
Because if we get it into our heads that our creating is too exhausting, then some point will come where we let go of the creating because we say, you know, we're not paying enough responsibility to life, that the creating is too taxing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important that after we finish creating, whether it's on a given day or whether we've completed a project, that we remind ourselves that we can return with strength and that as exhausting as the work has been, it isn't so exhausting that we can't deal with the rest of life. You know, the beauty of what I hear you saying is that while we're getting so many different messages from the outside world, we have the power to send ourselves messages and to build messages within us that we ourselves want that are going to empower us. Yes, and I think that may be the the central art of centering and presence, is that we are sending ourselves the message that we're not being you know, yanked about uh, by a puppet master. We're not the victims of the outside world. Let's take another call, Michael. Thank you for calling. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. What a great show. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to uh, ask a question following up on uh, how you've talked about, wouldn't it be great if we taught kids this in school? I couldn't agree more. You know, we'd send these kids out into the world, and these are the skills they really need. Um, and I know there are some people that come in and do some type of work like this in schools, but I'm wondering if your guest, if you could also say his name again, and that um, if he can recommend any books or people that have really talked about how to introduce this to kids, um, because they're in this such a creative state when they're young like that, and I think they just get shut down. And it's amazing to see kids, the rare child that's been raised in a way where that doesn't happen. They are just so fully alive um, with their creativity and their confidence, I notice. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the first part of your question for Dr. Maisel. His name is Dr. Eric Maisel, M-A-I-S-E-L. And what I'd recommend to you as a teacher is that you get his book, Mastering Creative Anxiety, and look at these 24 lessons, 24 methods that he puts in uh, his book, and you can teach them to the kids. And what do you think about that, Eric? I think that makes perfect sense. I think for a teacher, if a teacher has freedom, if, if she isn't just teaching the curriculum, and a lot of teachers don't have the freedom to do anything but teach the curriculum, the most important thing you can do is allow kids to have big ideas. Big ideas. Big ideas and to, to present a big subject and then just allow them to have their own opinions. And you, and when they present their opinions, you say thank you as opposed to, well, you could have thought this or you could have thought that. By big, big subjects, I mean why is there war? Or um, what if a friend um, broke the law? Or, you know, we could invent... 20 or 30 or 40 or a zillion interesting questions that a class could be asked to just think about. Because what we're really talking about is thinking and the anxiety of thinking. I've been writing about this for the Huffington Post um, and introducing the idea of thinking modules in the classroom day. It can never happen because the day is just too bound up with teaching to the curriculum right now. But if it ever could happen, I think that's the... It's a straightforward, simple, no-cost way to really improve the school day is to carve out 45-minute period out of the day called the thinking period or the, the thinking module or something where kids are allowed to just think. What a great idea for teachers who are listening. Sure, let's take that call, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi there. Hi there. I'm an older person. I'm 78, and I've just been treated for ADD for the last couple of years. And uh, with a uh, uh, medication that's similar to Ritalin, and it, 
I've, it's made such a big difference in me, like for something like public speaking or um, dealing with people, confronting people, telling people how I feel and stuff. And I just wondered if that uh, uh, fits in with anything the doctor has to say. Eric? Well, ADD is an anxiety disorder. Yeah. And um, pharmaceuticals is one way to treat an anxiety disorder. In my menu of 22 ways, it's one pharmaceuticals are one category of way uh-huh. of dealing with um, anxiety disorders. From my point of view, if a person can deal with his anxiety disorders in a non-pharmaceutical way, it's probably better if, if the person can. And then there are, I think, special times when pharmaceuticals really play an important part. I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you experience performance anxiety and you have a big, huge audition coming up. Let's say it's a real career-changing audition where you're maybe auditioning for the Boston Philharmonic or what have you. Mm -hmm. For For most performances, I would hope that you could deal with the performances without pharmaceuticals so that you don't get dependent on them. But for that particular audition, it might make real sense to use anti-anxiety medication for that one particular instance. So I think what I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is pharmaceuticals work. Drugs do have effects. But from my point of view, it would be wonderful to have other kinds of strategies that maybe can be used before one tries pharmaceuticals. Thank you. That's, uh, that's very helpful. Um, I want to go from there to something connected to that, which is something you call symptom confrontation techniques. Maybe we can sort of segue from the use of pharmaceuticals to the use of confronting the symptoms. It's an, it's an odd technique, and it comes from Viktor Frankl's work. It comes out of logotherapy, and it's a kind of semi-tongue-in-cheek technique where you demand of yourself that you create more of a symptom. So let's say you're a violinist, and and as you know with anxiety, anxiety will hit in exactly the worst place for you. So if you're a singer, it'll hit in the vocal cords. If you're a violinist, it'll hit in your wrist. So let's say you're a violinist who experiences anxiety in your wrist. The idea of this technique is to demand of your wrist that it get shakier and shakier and shakier and shakier, until the absurdity of what you're trying to do makes you laugh and the anxiety goes away. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful technique for people who find it at all congenial. Not everyone is going to find it congenial at all. A lot of people are not going to find the idea of increasing a symptom congenial at all. So it's one to think about and, and maybe try out, but I think it's probably a little down the line of things one might try. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of a technique that we use uh, for ticks, where we uh, ask the person to to purposely do the tick over and over and over exactly. and over until eventually it exhausts the tick. And I think you can tell that that works especially well with a therapist or with a coach, with a helper. Yes. I think that's a little hard to do by yourself. I, I think symptom confrontation technique is, is really an excellent technique when someone is helping you do it. Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about here, these different methods that you're suggesting, Eric, sound they're very empowering. I mean, you're offering a a terrific toolbox for people to be able to reach into. And I, I want to tell all of you who are listening that that he does it so well in this book, uh, Mastering Creative Anxiety, that you you literally can pick up the book and 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 read read tools 
that you can jump right into and use and make part of your, of your psychological uh, armamentarium. By the way, you mentioned Viktor Frankl, and I want to throw in a plug, although he's long gone, but he has a, there's a great book that's still out that he wrote called From Death Camp to Existentialism. And for those of you who are interested in that topic, I mean, it's, a, it's a really a wonderful uh, must-read book. Uh, where shall we go from here, Eric? We have a few minutes left, and uh, well, maybe I think you wanna... maybe what might be smart is is maybe just to um, give a few headlines about other techniques that are that are available to people, just to give them a sense of the different sorts of things they can do to reduce their experience of anxiety. A really important one is what's called preparation techniques. That's exactly what it sounds like, and that is to just rehearse situations more than we usually do. If you have an upcoming telephone conversation with a literary agent about your novel, there are only five or 10 or 15 questions you could ex- reasonably expect an agent to ask you. You know, what's your book about, and how long is it, and when will it be done? Or, you know, they're just natural questions, and we can create strong answers to those questions if we spend the time and do it. And then we will be much less anxious if we know that we have prepared answers to the most likely question. This, this is true for a job interview or a conversation with your child about, you know, his drinking habits or anything under the sun. If you think through in your mind's eye what the interaction might look like and then prepare the answers that you think are your strongest, that's going to reduce your experience of anxiety. The preparation itself. That's right. As we're coming to the end, Give us the number one thing that a creative person needs to remember with respect to their creative anxiety. What's the top of the list? I think the top is to not try to avoid the experience of anxiety, that anxiety is a natural feature of the process, that it needs to be embraced and, in certain circumstances, invited in and then managed. And so the second biggest headline is try to really own one or two anxiety management strategies that you know are actually going to work for you in the moment when the anxiety arises. So would you recommend, for example, if people are listening and they're saying, gee, I sort of like that idea. Instead of being so afraid of being anxious, and then how am I going to deal with it? I'm going to do what he says, and I'm going to see if I can make myself anxious and then deal with the anxiety. Would you recommend that? See if we can actually... It's not so much that you want to make yourself anxious. You want to do the thing that makes you anxious. You want to do it's the thing. It's not creating anxiety for its own sake, but it's not avoiding writing your novel or not avoiding public speaking. It's, it's doing... It's take, the funny thing is people will say all the time, you know, I'd like to take a risk, but they don't want it to feel risky. And I, I think this is one of those circumstances where you want... The thing is going to feel risky, so be prepared for that. Whatever it is you choose to do is going to feel risky. If it's been feeling risky all along, it's going to continue to feel risky anxiety will arise, and then you need to manage it. I'm thinking of this patient who told me that every time her friends and family come to the house, they criticize her because the house is so messy, and yet she, every time she goes to, to, to straighten it out and to, uh, and to get it, she says it's clean, but it's just messy. There's stuff everywhere. And every time she goes to organize it, she gets this terrible anxious feeling inside, and then so she, gets fr- she freezes, and she's unable to, to, uh, to, to straighten out the house. Exactly, and therefore, there she needs to say to the people who come, yeah, it's messy, (laughs) (laughs) and relax with their, you know, observations and uh, criticisms. Because she's dealing uh, partly with their criticisms of how she lives. That's right. She probably, 
she's probably happy with the mess, as long as it's not, you know, an episode of Hoarders. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. you know, if it's a normal mess, creative people often make a normal mess, and there's no reason to straighten that out for other people. So that's something else for us to remember, which is if we're getting anxious because of what other people are that's telling right. us and, and the way they want us to live, that's very different than not meeting our own expectations or not doing what we want right. to do, not creating. And I have a category of... of, of strategies called improved appraising and that's what we're talking about here sort of appraising where the anxiety is really coming from is it my anxiety because of something that's dangerous to me or am i dealing with other people's um criticisms of me and what what should i do about that that's the way i want to end our program today which is for us to ask ourselves are my anxieties because i'm dealing with something that is important to me or am I having this feeling because of what other people are saying? That's an, an essential distinction to make, isn't it? Yes.